the axe of the blood god. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Axe of the Blood God, US Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm Kat Bailey. Each week we dive deep into the genre we love, dissecting every element of its mechanics and story, whether it's JRPG, WRPG, Tabletop RPG, or some other RPG I have yet to name. This week, I'm joined by Cliffhanger's Jan Wagner, who will share some of the difficulties of kickstarting an RPG, namely Shadowrun Online which has had a share of difficulties since first being announced more than a year ago. A little later, Ultima creator Richard Garriott will share some updates on his game Shroud of the Avatar, as well as some of his philosophy on RPG design. It's a special GDC episode, so get ready, grab your gear, and let's get underway. Well, all right. I'm here at GDC 2015 with Jan Wagner, Managing Director of Cliffhanger Productions. He's holding up his badge for me very helpfully. And Jan, it's been a year now since you first put out the beta for Shadowrun Online. And why don't you give me a little update and tell me how things are going? Obviously, you can notice that they're going slightly too slow for, for our test. But um, we're actually close to releasing now. The release schedule has just been announced. Um, we're releasing end of April. And I think we're at the stage where it's actually becoming a game as opposed to a selection of features that we glue together. And it's, it's been a bit, well, it's obviously been hard because the, the, the early access stuff never really represents the game as we see it. So a lot of people were, were reacting to the game at a point where it's you know, not even near finished, but just sort of a collection of features. Um, I mean, now people are seeing the game evolve, and that's actually quite fun because we get a lot of positive reviews now, and we get a lot of um, good feedback from our players who can actually work with that feedback, which also shows what early access would, should be about, as opposed to you know, trying to make an early buck in, in some way. It, by now, we actually communicate about the game with our people, and that's, that's really good. So for people who aren't you know, that familiar with Shadowrun Online, could you take us a little bit through like the actual game, what's it all about, and also how does it differ from Shadowrun Returns? That is a question that we get asked a lot. Um, well, on I think on, on the sort of the highest level, they're, they're similar games, obviously. They're, they're, play, they're playing in the Shadowrun universe. Our, inside our gameplay is a little later, so the storyline is, is um, sort of more to the current version of Shadowrun. Um, I would say if, if you look at Shadowrun Returns, it's a an adventure game with a bit of tactical combat in between. I mean, it's, it's, it's great about storytelling, um, but it but also has limits with regards to what you can do with a character. And um, whenever a story is told, you need to start a new character. For us, we focused on the more of the team of, of, the, of the other part of the pen and paper experience, which is playing with people. Uh, the, the, the pen and paper experience is not reading a book and then rolling dice. It's, it's about playing with people. And this is what we try to, to show. So there's a lot of... Um, uh, interaction. Um, you, you always have a, a team of runners. You can play that solo, but you can also play um, with for up to four players. Um, it's, I would say, as a reference, it's a bit like XCOM in the Shadowrun universe. So there's a lot of tactical depth. There's a lot of skills. There's a lot of different opportunities for you to um, 
approach missions in, in a different way and and there's a storyline and there's um, instance missions so um, between 15 and half an hour per map um, that yeah that that the team gets to play and then then there's a hub so there's parts of an MMO experience as well um, so we have uh, you can meet other runners in that hub you can you know exchange stories you can go into that hub with your group and do the shopping talk to the NPCs um, so, so in that sense, it's a it's a role playing game with, with very strong tactical elements that you can play as a team or or in solo. So, my own experience with Shadowrun, I played the actual tabletop game a few years ago. Um, I was a hacker um, with a cybernetic arm. It was pretty awesome. Um, I'm curious what your own connection to the pen and paper game is. Um, have you played it? And what is your character like? What class do you like? Um, I played. Second, like my first experience with Shadowrun was second edition, so it's like fifteen to eighteen years ago, which just shows you how old I am. Um, and and we've been playing Shadowrun ever since. I actually have a, a standing Shadowrun group that's been playing for fifteen years. So so we're pretty dedicated to the license. Um, I I used to play a troll called Peacemaker, and he's got a Panther assault cannon, and and th that he had a name for Kitty. And that's he was he was interesting in the sense that that when everybody saw him he was sort of the typical troll, but then he got a, had a bunch of um, knowledge skills, so he was really like the knowledgeable guy, but he was not um, very well educated in the sense that he couldn't speak very well, and and everybody just assumed he would be dumb, and he wasn't, and that that was just we got a lot of laughs out of situations where 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 the troll knew everything and everybody else looked kind of stupid. Whereas in a lot of situations the troll was assumed to be the stupid guy, and he had a panther assault cannon that sort of argued for itself. We had a troll in our group, and that troll was a big fan of the Teletubbies, apparently. Yeah, trolls tend to be strange. It's just, it's just the way that you, if, you have, if you have these like, big, ugly guys, you need to do something with them. Yeah, yeah exactly. Usually they're the muscle and everything. Um, the thing that I... Like Shadowrun is one of my favorite tabletop games, um, going back a ways. And one of the things that I've always liked about it is... Um, compared to Dungeons and Dragons, which is what I have, has been called a beer and pretzels tabletop game, it's you're a superhero. Uh, Shadowrun, you have really awesome abilities, but you are really limited. Like if you get into combat, there's a good chance that you're going to get shot, you're going to bleed out, and you're going to die. Um, the the missions are much more about stealth much more about uh, clever use of your ability to negotiate and that sort of thing. Um, and the best GMs can really reflect that in their campaigns. How have you kind of integrated that ethos into Shadowrun Online? I think it's it's difficult to translate it properly. Um, I'm, I'm a long-time pen and paper player, and I, I just say that, honestly, computer role-playing games aren't the role-playing games that I mean when I say this is a role-playing game. Um, so, so there's a limit to what you can do on that. Uh, for us, it's about giving players options. A, a, oh, okay, a combat is deadly, for example. That's that's one of the first things. You don't just breeze through combat and kill people wantonly. They they shoot back, and if they meet like hit you one or two times, you you're gonna be dead. So, th so that is the deadliness of the combat automatically translate into the players being more careful. Um, the second thing is that that the, there is a lot of combinations. So, so the interaction between the characters is 
I think even more pronounced than Shadow in itself, where you had your sort of specialized roles, you had the troll tank and the hacker in the background, the mage doing stuff. But um, we, we, we allow that. For example, hackers um, don't need line of sight in order to attack people. They, they attack them through the matrix. So, so the hacker can stay back. You can, you can have these typical roles. But also, there's a lot of interaction that's required. So the, um, th that emulates, I think, to a degree, the, um, the fact that you had, you know, there's careful planning involved and always you have to shadow run. can always go sideways whenever combat starts. And, and that's what we try to do as well. Um, we also have non-combat interactions, so um, you can hack cameras, you can open doors, you can, I don't know, surprise the guard on the toilet and, you know, take him out while nobody's looking, stuff like that. Um, but, but, I, but it's not, it's hard to do a stealth game as a group. It's, it's just something that is, that is um, if, if that is your sole focus, then, then the game premise changes tremendously. So we're trying not to do a stealth game, we're trying to do a game where you need to be clever and where there's at least several options how to approach the situation. Um, the one thing that we really don't have much, and, and I, I'm going to be totally frank about this, is, is talking. I think that's one of the least attractive things to do in multiplayer. So if you've got a group and I watch you talk, I, it's just going to be a lot of walls of text coming at me. And, and I, don't connect, I can't do anything with it. I, you know, there's no way for me as a character to interact with you while you're talking. So, so this is something that, that works well in single player, but even, even then... I find that a lot of the dialogue is forced. Like, you know that, you know, in the end, there's going to be two dialogue options, and one comes down to, you know, this is good, and the other comes down to, this is bad. Um, and, and in a role-playing game, in an actual live role-playing game, the GM can do so much more. You know, there, there's so much more you do. And, and trying to represent that in a, in a way that's proper is, is really, really, really hard. Um, and then when you did all that hard work and try to do it in a proper way and then you have your group being bored while you do that while one character does this the face does it nobody else gets to do anything um, so this is this is an aspect that we just didn't carry over there's a lot of story but it's what we call a voluntary story so we don't force you you don't have to read everything that there is in terms of law in terms of comments from people in order to play the mission you can just go like hey let's meet up and play a mission click click you've got your you, pretty pretty quickly you, you get a get a, a quick dialogue where what you're supposed to do sort of background and then then that's it if you care about the storyline then then there's a whole hub of npcs commenting on it and you're giving you good, but they're actually talking to you not because they're not a puzzle where you, where you click on them and then you click on the next dialogue and that, that goes, go to the other guy and talk to him and then you go, okay, go to the other guy, talk to him, click, click, click. And, and in the end, it's just a linear adventure that, that forces you to go around to, to get talk options so you get to the next chapter of your, of your, of your um, story. We actually give you, as I said, it's voluntary. You, if you want to immerse yourself in the lore, talk to all these people, they have opinions, you know, they may give you hints, they, they may rap about other guys uh, out there, they, they may talk um, about you, you know, what you did, but, but not once are you forced to talk to any of them if you don't want to. So that, that's what we try to do and sort of flesh out the, the background without forcing you to, to go through a narrow or linear story, sub, um, uh, story succession where, where always you have to go um, A, B, C, D, E, and then I can go on my adventure. It's, if you don't want to do that, don't do it. Uh, you're talking about dialogue not really fitting in well with MMORPGs. I feel like one of the kind of key examples of dialogue sort of working in an MMO is Star Wars The Old Republic, where you had your your dialogue tree and everybody would click and then one choice would get chosen for the group and it swapped between the different characters. And it was kind of neat to see other members of the party talking. Um, had you considered anything like that for Shadowrun Online? 
We, we yes, we did. We looked at that, and it's. I think it's it's a it's a really good system, in, but it's still. It's it it means there's a lot of logic and there's there's a huge amount of logic involved behind that, um, and I think it's fine if you presume that there's sort of a stable group that does that. Um, and, and maybe a lot of people will play it that way. It's just get like three friends together and play the whole campaign. Um, but we also wanted to be able to just go like, okay, switch in. You know, I'm 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 alone here now. But I want to play a mission with somebody. Um, and we just pick it up there. And and then you get and this this is something that I saw in Star Wars as well. You get a lot of grief from strangers. Like if if I go, hey, I want this dialogue option. I, somehow I managed to do that. I've just forced my dialogue on everybody else. And that that is a negative. That that's a, that's a double-edged sword, I, I think. Um, and and to be honest, we looking at Shadow and Returns, where where, the, where there's a lot of dialogue, and that's brilliantly done. And it's a single-player story. We said, do we really want to try and do sort of a second-rate version of that, where where the the, the options are you know seem more random because there's other people involved? We, we're going to try and focus on 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 what we can do really well, where where the where other people actually are an asset to you, and and you know the, being with the other players in a group. In, in the tactic situation, makes a huge amount of sense. In in the talk situation, we could have had that system, or we could have had there's other systems that we looked at as well um, that are also similarly where like the collective, some collective stats of the group did, would determine the way you play that, or that that plays out. Um, and in the end, everybody was like, I don't want to do that. Like, if I'm if I'm talking, I'm really conscious about what my character says, and the fact that somebody else is saying that for me, and I didn't want that to be the stuff that I, that's being said. It never really sat well with us. So let's talk a little bit about Kickstarter now. Uh, RPGs are a notoriously large and complicated games to make. MMORPGs are even more so. And you combine that with a crowdfunding, uh, use of crowdfunding where the fans are extremely, um, I want to say, demanding. Um, what's that like? I mean, it must be really tough as an MMORPG developer where you have very little kind of leeway or room for error anyway. I think we, we did about, we made about every error that we could on the way. So so I, I totally, I can, yes, it's really, it is really tough. I think the the problem with Kickstarter is always that you, you're selling a certain dream to people because that's what they buy into. They buy into a nostalgia, they buy into something that they they think a version of what, you know, of their dream version of what they want will, will become. And and the RPG fans are even more pronounced because you, you there's a storyline there's a did you do it right like this is one of the questions is this Shadowrun or isn't it Shadowrun that's been following us around and obviously with with Shadowrun Returns with Jordan you know, he's the guy that invented Shadowrun so and even he got like rap for like this is not how orcs look like and this is what people go like but you, you know guys this is the guy that invented that story you tell him what his characters should look like that's really weird and for us it's it's even more so so I think yes it, it is very they're, they're a very demanding crowd they can also be a tremendously um, creative crowd I mean that's that's the other side of that where where we get Great suggestions from people that really got us thinking, and on on a system level, on you know, there, there's a lot of feedback that that is useful, and, and but um, there's always people that go like, no, this is not exactly what I imagined, and so it's crap. Um, and and being public with Kickstarter, being public in early access, we get the same thing, and and there's different crowds on these different sort of venues where early access people have different demands than Kickstarter people. They look more into game mechanics and polishing and graphics, and the Kickstarter people look more into storyline and, and characters. Um, and for us, not being like 
obviously we're a studio that's not in the US, which is also difficult for us because um, from the get-go we sound different than normal people should. Um, and and the, there is a uh, we needed to build a lot of trust um, up, and we we frankly didn't manage with everybody. There's still people that go out there and say this isn't Shadowrun, you're making crap. Um, it's a different vision of the game, and 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 that's something that that is we comp we we can't compromise on that because then we would lose our track. Um, so there is a degree to which we can take that criticism on board, which we can take suggestions on board, but but um, I think there. The, 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 there is a lot of the, the money comes with a lot of strings attached I would say um, and, and it isn't as um, we mentioned where you hey we don't have a publisher anymore that you know tells us how to do things we have 6,000 publishers that tell us how to do things now and each of them has a different vision so yeah that's tough you're, you're pretty frank in saying that you felt like you made a lot of mistakes early on um, if you could go back and change things uh, what would you do I think when we started out, we had a, um, as, as usually, we, we sort of got carried away in the Kickstarter a bit. So we, we, we planned out a game, but, the, but it evolved through the feedback and through the amounts of community, and it evolved into something larger than we, we would have been able to realistically do. Um, we also had, and, and this is actually one of the, the consequences we, we, that, that's been announced today, we have changed the name from Shadowrun Online to Shadowrun Chronicles. For the sole reason that online has so many associations, like we had people going, why isn't this World of Warcraft MMO style open world something? We never said it would be, but when they read online, they stopped, you know, thinking any further. Other people went online, so it's a browser game, you know. It's like, wh where do you get that? And it's still to this day, there's people reporting it. The new browser MMO from Shadowrun, uh, for for Shadowrun, and and uh, so so that's one of the things we should have been much clearer on the limitations of our vision. Um, we got half a million. Which is great, but that's nowhere near what you need to make an MMO. Like people that think that we made, we would be able to make World of Warcraft style MMO. That's cost hundreds of millions by now. I I I don't even know where where you know where where to begin on that. So um, so that is something that we should have done. Um, we also had um, that's that's sort of a more personal side of that uh, for our studio. We we initially thought that we could do the game based on the technology that we had, and then we found out we couldn't. Um, for the various reasons that the features were too hard to make and, and the, the cross-platform aspects that we wanted to bring across didn't work out. So we had to completely overhaul the technology which threw us a year back. That's one of the things that we, we didn't look hard enough at our tech base. We were confident that we could do it and then we found out we couldn't. And, and then we had to go to our backers and go like, okay guys, this is going to take one at least a year longer than we anticipated. And obviously everybody was like, what are they doing with our money? You know, they're slacking off. They're not doing what they're supposed to do. Why isn't there any progress? Um, and and that sort of narrowing down the vision much, much more in, in, in the beginning, um, that would have been something that, that we would have needed to do. And also the, the third thing I think is that, the, again, with the, with the positioning um, of, of saying Shadowrun Online, inviting a lot of people to think it's going to be just like Shadowrun Returns, only massively multiplayer. Um, we never said it would be, but, but we, we didn't exactly say how it, we, I think we said how it different, how we different, we see it differently or how it would differentiate, but I don't think we said it, apparently we didn't say it clear enough so people would realize that's it. And then we were left with a lot of, like already we started with our backs against the wall with expectations being massively larger than our funding could be. And then it took us 
with the technology, it took us an extra year and we needed more funding because after a year the, the money ran out. Um, and and that, is, that is also typical in tips, Kickstarter games, I think, that the, the initial project scope isn't exactly well defined and then you find yourself already needing more money um, whilst you're basically trying to deliver on the promises. Um, and this is especially true for RPG, which are massive projects. Like even the, the much better funded RPGs, like even Jordan, like Shadow Returns had the same issue. They, they, ran to, like they, had, they got a lot of money. Um, and still, at the end, they, they barely made it under the, under the, uh, the, um, the money they, they had. So, so the RPG budgets tend to explode. And, and for Kickstarter, for a publisher, you go back to the publisher and go like, hey, I'm sorry, we're three months late. We need extra money. And then they negotiate and they cut you out of all your royalties and then whatever. But, but at least there's somebody to go to. On Kickstarter, I can't go back to Kickstarter and go like, oh, guys, you know what? We actually need twice that. Sorry, can you give us an extra 500? That's just impossible. So, so as great as the, as a platform for funding it is, um, it's the actual projects when they when they get into trouble, they they have they have a harder time because they are, can't attach themselves to a publisher. They can't attach themselves. Like I can't sell off Shadowrun to somebody. I've got Kickstarter promise to keep. So you say that you didn't do a great job of articulating your vision for this game. Um, if you could go back and do it again, what would be kind of your elevator pitch uh, for? how you actually want people to see your game. We thought about saying something. It's, it's, between, it's a mix between XCOM and Shadowrun Returns set in the Shadowrun universe and that you can play as a team. That would be the one sentence. And it's not, and not as sexy as it may be, but that's actually a pretty accurate description. So Shadowrun Online, now Shadowrun Chronicles, um, uh, did not get a great reception, unfortunately, when it initially arrived last year. Um, but it seems like things have started to turn around uh, for you guys. Um, the dialogue around the game seems to be much more positive. Um, tell me a little bit about that journey to turning things around. Well, when it, when it came out, it was really a bare-bones version. And it's something where we said, okay, we need we need just to show... Like At the, at the point, because of the, all the delays, people were already going like, I don't believe there is a game at all. Like, what Are you guys even there? So we had to prove there is something. Um, but the problem was at that stage that the vision that we had was really very much limited by the by the cross platform. We wanted initially to go cross platform um, at launch, which means that there is a lot of limitations to, in terms of technology. There, it's a lot more you know, it's a lot more work to actually develop for that, um, and that informed our design decisions, um, like uh, size of groups, size of levels, all that. You know, the amount of dialogue on, on mobile is you know just you don't read that most text. Um, and and that because of that that's sort of the, 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 that initial setup that we, that we chosen that we've chosen we got we, we worked ourselves into a corner where the game wasn't the game that we wanted to make but it was the game that we had to make in order to make it really truly cross platform from from the get go and um, especially then when Shadowrun Returns launched successfully obviously the questions became more more. Um, more aggressively uh, posed to us, and um, at that time we said, okay, you know, we, that's not the way. We, that's not the game that we wanted to make initially. We we sort of been veered off course by the technology choices that we made to to a degree. Um, we need to turn this around, and and that we actually sat down and and funnily enough, when we sat down, and just said, okay, guys, you know, what, what let's remember that one and a half years ago, what's the game that we wanted to make? You know, what was what is important to us uh, you know, around that. Um, it pretty much matched with a lot of the stuff that the players wanted from us. Now, we're we're Shadowrun players as well, so we we sort of wanted the same thing, and we forcibly sort of 
yeah, we really turned the, the whole project around. So we sat down, we, we threw away heaps of stuff um, that, that we already sort of had halfway developed or the, in, in some stage of, of feature being finished and, and, fo and refocused the game on, on what it currently is. And from then on, we, we had to, it was an uphill struggle for four, five, six months until it actually became vis visible what we did. A long time that, that couldn't be seen in the early access version. We already did a lot of groundwork for that, but it didn't become apparent because it wasn't actually experience, you couldn't experience in the game. Um, and yeah, so we turned that around. We, we, we tried to, to be really, really open. I mean, I've, I've got, uh, this is why I have no problem being frank now. I've got whole videos for me on YouTube, ex you know, apologizing to people, explaining what the problem is, explaining how, how um, funding uh, isn't, wasn't, was limited, how we got in financial trouble, um, why we had to make uh, another game on the site in order to, to be able to cross-finance the, the technology development. And I explained all that to people. We, we try to be as open and honest as we can. And of course, people went like, bunch of idiots. And they were right. I mean, we did make wrong decisions. That's, that's just, the, I, I, why would I pretend otherwise when everybody can see that we did so? But we stuck with it. I mean, that's, that's I think, the thing um, that, that, that also shows. Um, a couple of people kept being loyal to us. A couple of people kept, you know, giving us positive feedback and encouraging us. And that actually helped us a lot to find the, the, the sort of power to move on against a lot of opposition. And, I mean, there, there's other things. Our studio, like a lot of our guys in the studio didn't get paid their full wages for a time. Because there just was no way to do that. Um, if we had to have done that, then the, the development would have been ended at that stage. The, the, the guys in the studio wanted to do the game, so they decided, okay, you know, let's let's. I can I can not eat for a time. You know, <laughs> I I can I can scrounge from from a mother's table. So let's let's go ahead and and you know we we don't see that wage. That's fine. We want to we want to do the game. So so we're really at the point where there wasn't a. Uh, a choice for us uh, other than go forward because after that I, I can't go back to my team and go oh you know what we don't do that sorry if, you, if you've, you haven't gotten your wages but yeah let's, let's just stop it now um, and, and after all that hardship I think this is, this is what actually brought us to a point where we said okay you know, all this all the sacrifices that we made we, we have to make that game we have to make it in a way that we at least if nobody else likes it we need to like it because after all that stuff we put in there if we went out with a game that, that we didn't believe in, that would just be such a disappointment for us. So at that stage, we, 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 we were, yeah, we, we, we took a, a huge risk, um, changed a lot of features at the spot. We had fortunately built the technology in a way that we could do that relatively easily. We threw away all the balancing, did completely new balancing, added more skills, more characters, more RPG stuff. Um, and, and it was three months of hell. And then now finally we sort of through that and, and the game clicks together and we see the features becoming, working, interacting with each other. We see the, the, the storyline unfolding and we see the, the characters developing and, and that's really satisfying after sort of a two-year hard struggle um, trying to reach the point where other people could see the game that we've been seeing in our heads for a while. After all that, would you go the crowdfunding route again or are you kind of wanting to not work with the 6,000 publishers again? No, I think I'd, I'd do it again. I just wouldn't do the same mistakes. I would do exciting new mistakes probably. But we, we, definitely, we definitely know now that how we, we would approach it and we're actually going to probably do that as well. We, um, we're looking at our next project which could also be a licensed title and um, we will go out and have a crowdfunding, but we we'll we'll approach it in a different way. Um, and and I think I still 
the reason we got into this is we didn't want to have a publisher dictate our vision. And it took us a while to find our vision again. We sort of got lost in the way, but now that we have it, we also see that when you, when you're, when you believe in what you're doing and when you, if you can explain it to people, um, most of them will be reasonable. Shadowruns have been, Shadowrun fans have been immensely positive since we engaged them actively. And a couple of them just say, you know, I don't like it, but okay, I still, I'm, I'm, I'd, I'm, I'm not going to give you grief about that. Um, it's not what I would have liked, but it's still a good game. So, okay, you know, stick to what, what you want to do. Um, and yeah, so yeah, we will do it again. We, we, we want to do it again and we probably will do it again. It's funny because I think that uh, fans of a licensed property like Shadowrun, especially Shadowrun fans who are the hardest of the hardcore, are going to be very demanding and they have a very specific vision in their head. But in a way, it's also easier, right? Because they're more loyal to the property and therefore they are much more likely to be believers in your vision than as opposed to selling an original vision to them that they don't know anything about and don't have any prior attachment to. What are your thoughts on that? I think if you look at Kickstarters that have been successful, you can see that it's mostly what I call nostalgia projects. So it's projects for people either from a license or from a pre-existing game or at least from a person that has made a pre-existing game and, and sort of promises to have that give you that same experience. So Tides of Numenera and then um, Pills of Eternity, all these are all similar projects. Um, I think this is almost a condition because it's so hard to convince people of a vision that that no matter how well you try to communicate it and, and on video and, and whatever form, it's so hard to to really get that across. Whereas with a, an established license like Shadowrun, already there is sort of a, a, a joint vision in everybody's head. Obviously, there's minor or major differences in that joint vision, and that, that's where the problems begin. But at least you have that groundwork laid. And I think this is this is why it's um, it's easier and harder. Um, but but you're right. The the people that do stick to it when, once you once you get the street cred, I think that's what it's about. The be- people need to believe that you're authentically trying to make a Shadowrun game and that you're up to that task. And for a while that has been in doubt with us. And by now, people a lot of people go like, okay, that's that's I can see that is Shadowrun. And with that one sentence, everything else becomes less of an issue. So you recently pushed live a pretty large patch. You introduced a much more robust character creation, if I'm not mistaken. Um, So I would say the game itself has grown tremendously in the past few months. Um, What's the road ahead? Well, the the immediate future is the the actually finishing the the complete RPG experience. So you've got the character creation in a proper way, and then from then on you also have accounts. So currently you just can play every mission, you know, repeatedly. But then it's actually going to be a campaign. Um, the next the, in the inside the next update is also the four player co op, and um, the multiplayer hub where you can actually meet live people and chat and, and you know, swap runner stories and tips and whatever. Um, and uh, then there is multiplayer PvP. More content. We've got about sixty missions in various states of being unfinished by now, um, and the, that's that's going to be sort of and cyberware, of course, because we you still can't have your arm currently in the, in the game. I can have it in my game currently because I've got the internal version. I just saw the cyberware, um, but um, yeah. So so that that's it. And then there's going to be a huge amount of of redoing the balancing. Um, we'll we'll separate the mage tree, so the mages actually feel um, like mages. So they've got they 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 feed into a fatigue pool and they 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 actually use up fatigue 
when they cast spells and um, they they lower the maximum when they when they equip cyborg. So all the stuff that that the Shadowrun rules emulation part that will be more pronounced in, in the next update. After that, it's going to be the launch end of April. Um, so there's a, there's just balancing, 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 polishing, 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 putting all the dialogues in. We'll, we're we're going to go into recording session next week. So there's a lot of voice dialogue as well. Um, and then hopefully, if the game does well enough, um, we'll have. We what we do is that there is a, um, a, sp a specific part that's been promised in the Kickstarter campaign that was also part of what we want to do in initially. Um, the collective actions of the players will change the plot. So what we'll do is we'll define certain events or certain uh, critical points of decision making, where based on what the players do we'll change the plot and it'll it'll feed back into the Shadowrun pen and paper universe. So we're sitting down with the writers of, of Shadowrun universe, um, of the current pen and paper rules um, and uh, and campaign and designing, basically the, the, the end of it is we'll, there's going to be one mega corporation that's going to go down and all players will decide which one it is. And, and the ramifications of that, that's sort of the next content update for us. Um, and I'm really looking forward to, to actually you know, seeing, seeing how that acts out. Um, and and yeah, so that's I think that's the sort of the biggest next two three months even after launch that's going to probably occupy us. And obviously, bug fixing after launch, as we know, there all the stuff that went wrong um, will need to be fixed. Yeah, I, I suppose you, you're talking about uh, kind of crowdsourcing where the plot's going to go. Um, I was playing Elite Dangerous last year, and they're doing something similar. Um, I think the only drawback of that approach is that when you're playing the game, you don't necessarily have a kind of an emotional connection to the different factions. They're just kind of this monolithic thing. Um, and I would say, I would imagine that would be kind of the case with the megacorps in um, Shadowrun. So how do you kind of mitigate that and make players care about which megacorp they end up selling or saving? Sorry. Yeah, or selling. Um, the, I think there's, there's two things. For people that aren't part of that Shadowrun universe, they'll, that'll always be less important. Um, for people that have been playing Shadowrun for a while, they, they have associations. Like if, if, if they hear Aztec, they, they know, you know how they stand again, you know, for or against that. Um, th that's one part. The other part is that inside the storyline as it develops, you can actually see how the mega corporations um, made certain decisions. And, you can, and none of them are moral in any way, so there's no good bad scheme. That's, it's Shadowrun. It's, there's, no, there's always a lot of gray. Um, and you can pick your own gray, which is, I think, much like a lot of factions, um, because it isn't a faction; it's a corporation. You don't have to have to have an emotional attachment. You can you can make your own moral choice, going like, I like these evil guys better than the other evil guys, but both both of them aren't really nice people. Um, it'll also affect the gameplay. Um, it'll it'll affect uh, who's giving you missions. Like if the ad technology goes down, there's going to be missions from ad technology going like, hey, we want to be back up again. Can you help us sabotage the other guys? So so that is they, 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 there's an immediate effect on on you know who's giving you missions and, and what 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 they're going to be about so that also changes the gameplay will it emotionally affect you i honestly if if it's it's all in your head so you know if if you if you care about these things you will i don't think our game will make you care on if if you didn't so in the first place i suppose my last question is after all of this work getting to kind of your vision of shadowrun um the finish line is in sight how do you feel <laughs> tired <laughs> so very very tired 
<laughs> weary of the world. No, actually, actually, by now I'm 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 positive. It it used to be really hard when when you work and you you get a lot of negative feedback and you see what you what you you know what you're about to do, but nobody else can see that it's really hard. Now that that people you know we can we can go to the forums and go like, hey, this is what we're gonna do, and they go, oh, cool, and and that's that's really really encouraging. And so I'm 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 a I think I'm a bit afraid of obviously when we launch what happens. Everybody's always going to be like, you know, this is our baby. Now we show it to the world. Will the world like it? Um, but um, but I'm 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 sort of the the positive excitement is starting to creep in. Let's put it this way. Jan Wagner of Cliffhanger, your game Shadowrun Chronicles is coming out at the end of April. So please look forward to it on Steam and elsewhere. Um, it's actually going to be there's going to be a boxed edition as well, and we're going to go on Humble and a couple of other digital sites as well. So all of the places, look for it online. All right, thank you so much, and good luck. Thank you very much. Well, welcome back, and we're here for our next interview, and here we have a living legend in RPGs. He's a man, you could call him the modern father of RPGs, the man who gave us the Ultima series, the man who has given us Ultima Online, the man who is currently behind Shroud of the Avatar, which is kind of a, a return of the series uh, that was kickstarted successfully about two years ago. Um, I met you about two years ago. Uh, you were showing me the very basic elements of that game. And I'm wondering, like, could you tell me, like, how have things been going in that and since I last saw you? Because this is right before right you. Right at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, well, thank you. And, uh, uh, and yeah, that's fa it's fascinating. I would, it, until you literally asked that question, it's uh, interesting to contrast, uh, you know, two years ago when we were showing you what we would have described as the, you know, the Kickstarter demo. Mm -hmm. That was something we honestly hacked together uh, using in, 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 Unity as an engine, which we still do. But we, it was all with assets we could basically get for free and most of the standard uh, toolboxes that existed within Unity or some easily accessible other pieces. But at least it helped us show what we, what we wanted to go build. Uh, and that was what we showed you at that first meeting. Then we had to sit back and tear that all apart, uh, start creating the custom code that was required, uh, still in, within uh, Unity, start doing all the custom pieces of art that uh, we wanted to uh, showcase the game with, Uh, and so it was probably about three or four months where it went backwards, you know, quite a few steps. Uh, but now for the last 15 months, so starting 15 months ago, we released the game to our backers. And 15 months ago, what, that, what the game was is an avatar walking around in a room with a chair and a chicken. That was it. We called it the chicken room. But, uh, uh, but then the next release, you could walk around in a town. And then the next release, you could see other people walking around with you in that town. And month by month, of course, it's gotten deeper and deeper and more and more systems have come online. Uh, and starting in November, we actually have now gone live 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So, so the, it, it's tempting to call it in a uh, commercial beta of sorts, uh, except that the game isn't really beta even yet. You know, we're, we, we won't be systems complete until this summer. Uh, and so at that point, we'd really call it alpha. So, so right now, we technically should call it pre-alpha. Uh, and then we hope to have, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the true beta of the game in the fall and then the first truly full commercial release, in a, in a, to use the traditional word, uh, at the end of this year. But, um, 
but to be honest, it's actually commercial and live now uh, in the sense of uh, you know anybody that backs the game, which is basically buying the game, uh, can get in and start playing now. Uh, the, uh, the game is getting richer and deeper you know, every day. And, uh, uh, but there will be, until we go to the final release, there'll still very likely be another wipe or two of all the player data, which is the, the, really the big difference between now and at the end of the year. So Shadow of the Avatar, kind of an interesting game. Like, I've seen people liken it to Ultima Online, but that's not really accurate, is it? Well, it's interesting that, you know, if I look back at my work, uh, you know, there are uh, ideals that I think were exemplified in a few games of my past. Uh, Ultima 4 for the introduction of Virtues, uh, although I think 5 and 6 and 7 all expanded on that very nicely. Uh, Ultima 7, I think, is still the high watermark from a world simulation detail. Uh, and then Ultima Online is sort of the beginning of the MMO era. Uh, I still think did things better and or at least uniquely compared to everyone who has come since, who tends to be falling more into the EverQuest slash World of Warcraft model. Not that that's a bad model, it's just that's the model everybody else is chasing. Very few people seem to be chasing the, uh, the Ultima Online type model. And so with Shroud of the Avatar, we wanted to really take those best uh, strategies, those best ideals, put them together into one product, plus some new things we thought of since then, or even some new things from Tabula Rasa, the game we did uh, since Ultima. Uh, we had uh, control points and other ways that, the, uh, that even in a multiplayer game, you could have a persistent change of the world state based on player actions. Uh, and AIs that were aware of cover and the three-dimensional terrain. So instead of just standing you standing in front of you and trading blows, they uh, were, would, would look for cover themselves and try to get a, uh, make sure you were not behind cover for the, from their line of sight. And, uh, and, and then one of the new things we're trying to do, especially new for Shroud of the Avatar, is how we're trying to tell a deep, rich story while operating within a multiplayer environment. And uh, the way the game does that is by throttling up and down how, how massively multiplayer it looks and feels to how solo player it looks and feels based on the story's need. And so there's parts of the games that uh, uh, you'll find will naturally uh, bar the entrance of your friends in a fictional way. Uh, but what's really happening is we wanted to tell you a story, a new story alone. How do you, how do you deal with kind of the inevitable... Uh, comparisons to a game like Minecraft, because obviously player housing is such a big deal in your game. Well, uh, well, first of all, to the degree that anybody made any comparisons to Minecraft, I would find that very complimentary. <laughs> you know, in the sense of I think Minecraft is a phenomenal game, not just a good game, but just phenomenal. Uh, uh, but uh, but you but you're correct that that, that player housing uh, is something that we realized in UO was going to be uh, so important, and we've also seen housing done what we would describe as not well many times since. Uh, part of the magic of housing in UO was that your house was pretty much anywhere in the world and uh, available to be seen and interacted with by everyone coming in or out of any uh, town. And, uh, but player housing is also very hard, and it's very hard not to just have urban sprawl all over the place as you get more and more successful. Housing becomes more and more of a pain for people to wander past all the unused or mostly unoccupied houses. And so uh, we've worked very hard to find a paradigm where we could still put the player housing in the core, uh, clustered tightly around the places where people are going to need to congregate for crafting and plot development and things of this nature, 
while not going to instanced uh, housing zones, which are largely ignored, and by not and, and also by discouraging people from leaving abandoned homes near that high value, high traffic area, and uh, and we think we've got that now with Stroud of the Avatar. Uh, but one of the side effects is real estate, like in Old Online, is very valuable. So that's actually what the the, the, the most expensive. You know, it's it's only cost you forty five dollars to play this game, but uh, but if you really want to buy real estate that's in the on, on the high traffic area in the most popular places, that will probably cost you real money or at least a lot of game gold uh, from player to player uh, transactions to uh, to acquire the most prime real estate. Yeah, uh, housing, from what I've been able to understand, is relatively rare um, in the sense that uh, if I'm not if I'm correct, most people get three housing lots uh, per character, um, and the result has been that lots of been relatively hard to come by to be able to build houses. Have you heard this feedback, or how would you react to that? Well, I would say that uh, housing is absolutely the most rare of commodities. But uh, but let me back outside of housing a little bit. You may talk about one of the things we're trying to do is, uh, which we sort of stumbled into, is getting out of competing with the players in their economy. And what I mean by that is that in most MMOs, like if you want the biggest, baddest you know weapons, you go to do an epic raid and you wait for the rare loot drop of the most badass weapon that the game has ever had. Uh, we actually think that works against the player economy. You, you really want to celebrate. You want the players to make the best stuff. And so we, and we also wanted the players to be able to make unique stuff, not only have a unique maker's mark, but to where, like, if you're going to make a sword, you first have to decide, well, what do you want that handle made out of? Wood, metal, leather-wrapped, wire-wrapped, and what are the values to having a handle made that way from a durability standpoint to a uh, does it help or hurt magic or your grip? Uh, and then what do you want the blade to make out of? You know, is it copper, which we've defined in our world is not as harmful to magic but is much less re- resilient? Or is it made out of steel or some other alloy? Uh, and all those things have an effect to where that weapon that you build is quite unique. Uh, compared to most other swords. Plus, it has your unique maker's mark, and you could have put uh, imbued it with some magic. And once you've killed 100 skeletons with it, it's now skeleton bane. And, and, and it has a certain amount of wear and repair, and all those things are tracked permanently for all things. Every chair, every table, uh, every piece of clothing, every sword. And, uh, and so instead of the game, when, there's, when the big bad guy at the boss level needs a, a piece of equipment to drop, instead of inventing it, what they do is, when as players sell things to our vendors in the in the world, the game buys them from those vendors. Instead of waiting for another player to buy something cool to drop, the game will buy it and give it to the lich that lives up in the castle of darkness. So when another player goes and you know kills the the, the bad guy, they find a piece of player made object, and uh, and so we we really no longer we've slowly transitioned to the point where we actually going to put nothing in the game other than tools, and the players will make everything. And, and how that relates back to your question of uh, property is that, um, you know, if you look at Ultima Online in most MMOs since, they, have, uh, they, they were so successful that we had to make multiple copies of the world. We, we, the common term nowadays is shards, which is actually an Ultima fiction term that everyone uses now. And, um, uh, but we, we actually think shards was, it was necessary to fix the problem of too good of success, but it's a bad thing in that it kind of arbitrarily cuts people off based upon what server they happen to have built their character on. And so we wanted everybody to live together in one world. And so we have a, 
a, a complex uh, but very robust uh, server structure that allows that. But that actually makes the housing problem worse. Because now instead of having 10 or 20 copies of the world for you to find your home in, now there's only one copy of the world. So there's only, you know, so that actually multiplies the problem by 20 or more. Uh, you mentioned most people having, you know, something of multiple lots. We actually find most people only have one lot. Uh, but everybody's in one world. So it's actually worse than three times the, the problem just because everybody is in one shard. And... Uh, uh, but the way we deal with that is multiple fold. First of all, there's tons of player built towns throughout our world. Um, you know, the, the story commands uh, that there's, uh, uh, you know, 50 or so towns with NPCs and story and things of that nature that will, people will be driven to, they'll need to enter to follow the, the plot. Uh, but there's already more than a hundred additional Player-only towns, meaning it's, it's literally a place that is founded in the map by players. Uh, there's no NPCs other than some guards or shop, you know, shopkeepers and things in there. There's no none of our story, the, the designer's story goes through there. It's all whatever players want. And uh, uh, and some of those are, are probably going to be more thriving than the ones we built. Uh, you know, there's a, one group, uh, I think it's a Britannia mining company, uh, that already owns amongst their guild of a few hundred players, they already own seven towns. Not just so, not just seven lots, seven whole towns, and each town has fifty lots inside of it. So, uh, um, uh, there's are some very, very large groups uh, moving in. So you got some mega corporations kind of growing up. That's exactly right. Well, you know, you think about it. Uh, you know, there's two, two, two or three groups that deserve uh, mentioning. You know, uh, there's a town called Pax Lair. And they were the first player-built town in Ultima Online. And they're still active in Ultima Online. And they're already now active in Shroud of the Avatar. Uh, there's a group called the Syndicate, which is the first big guild ever, also started in Ultima Online. They're now in basically all games. Uh, they're still one of the largest guilds of all you know, multiplayer gaming. Uh, and they also now are already in Shroud of the Avatar uh, and already have a big presence. And, uh, and this one I already mentioned, the Britannia Mining Company, again, formed in Ultima Online, has now moved to Shroud of the Avatar. So uh, we are uh, reacquiring and growing from all the, uh, the people, you know, a, a lot of anybody that plays MMOs, often, not everyone, everyone, of course, but a substantial fraction got their start in Ultima Online. And uh, a lot of those people are coming home, so to speak. I, I think that the core... Um, of followers who've been following Shadow of the Avatar would agree that you have some really interesting ideas, but you're in kind of the difficult position that a lot of Kickstarter um, users are in that you have a very demanding community who want their value for their money right now. What has that been for you, especially as kind of an old school developer? This development cycle has been uh, very different than others before. Uh, and I would actually now say in, a, in universally positive ways, but we didn't anticipate it to be universally positive, And it was pretty darn scary to start down this path. You know, when we first started, you know, we thought, well, you know, if, uh, if we don't want to go begging to big companies for the money to make this game and we don't think we can get, you know, out, large outside investors put in millions of dollars to make, help us make this game. So instead, if we turn to the users... Uh, if that fails, we won't be able to go back to the big companies begging for money because we'll have sort of proven that it won't work. And so it was pretty scary, honestly. For me personally, it was scary going, this could, be, this could end my career if this doesn't work. 
And, uh, uh, you know, and we went out for the, in the Kickstarter for a million. We made two. Within a couple months after that, we've made another two. And since then, we've made yet another two. And uh, in the last four months since we've been live, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, our growth rate of players and revenue per player is now uh, growing uh, greater than the, uh, uh, the expenses of our company. And so, we, we, you know, if, as long as this trend that has been so far four months long, as long as that holds, uh, you know, our success is now you know, quietly assured or, you know, at least some level of success is assured. Uh, and so we feel very good about that. But when you mentioned the demanding aspect of our followers, one, one of the other things that we started on accident, and to be honest, defensively, was uh, we said, look, as soon as the game is operable at all, we need to release it to the players. Because you never know what the future is going to hold. You never know if we were going to screw this up badly and run out of money and then have a lot of really angry people. And so we thought, you know, for safety, for legal safety, if nothing else, if we're releasing it to the players every month, at least we're providing some form of entertainment for the money they have entrusted us with. And it also means that there's no doubt what we're doing with their money. It means that they can never claim that we took all the money and flew to the Bahamas and had a nice uh, time. They would, they would see exactly what we tried to do with their money. And so we felt it was sort of a moral and a moral responsibility and a legal uh, safety net to start releasing to the public immediately. And that's when the chicken room you know, came from, this you know, room with a, a chair and a chicken in it, and that was it when we first released. But, but what happened with that is there was, there was a side effect that has been incredibly beneficial. First, since we release every single month on the third week of the month, and we've never failed to ship within a minute of on time, it means we're developing in a truly agile way, uh, unlike any project I've ever seen before, where you talk about publishing all the time, but nobody ever really does it. Well, we really are publishing literally every month. And we've been exactly on time every one of those months for 15 months. It also means, because of that iterative development, most of the code we'd write is actually shockingly stable. Our servers in 15 months, starting with the very beginning, has never, have never crashed. Never. Zero times. We've had zero unscheduled downtime in 15 months during the development of a game. Most finished games don't perform that well, much less one that is, you know, has been shipping since it was you know, barely a game loop. And, uh, and the, the last thing that's really benefited us from is that since people see, you know, every day when we have a daily meeting with the team, we publish the notes of what everyone's working on to the users. Again, as we started defensively, you know, going like, I mean, nobody's drinking, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know uh, drinking uh, champagne. Uh, you know, we're all uh, spending every one of their dollars, hopefully wisely, or at least on things they know we're spending them on so they can call us on it if they don't like it. But that also means that the systems that are only half implemented or 10% implemented, the players get to see. And what that means is they go, wow, oh, I see where you're headed with that. That's a really good idea. Here's some things to add to it. Or they might go, wow, I see where you're headed with that. I, you know, I'm, that scares me or I recommend you don't go there. And so we can course correct when we're only 10% into a system. And that means we waste a lot less money than we ever have in the past. And we get really good suggestions for how to fine-tune it while we're still developing it before it's kind of too late to adjust the parameters of the system. And so uh, I actually think that our, uh, you know, compared to, you know, if, if, if the game that we're building traditionally would have taken us a team of about 100 people. I think we saved a third of those people because we're developing in Unity. 
And I think we saved a third of those people because of this truly agile, regular publishing, rapid iteration, high levels of feedback that we're doing. Uh, and, uh, and that's allowing us to make a AAA MMO type game in three years and, you know, six or $8 million instead of, uh, three to five years, a hundred people and 10 to $30 million. As a quick digression, um, you guys recently moved up to Unity 5, which has been relatively big news here at GDC. Uh, what have been some of the benefits of moving to uh, the next level of Unity? Well, you know, we're, we are huge Unity fans. I mean, um, uh, to me, when we went through the Kickstarter process and I saw how quickly my team could put together the demo of what we wanted to do in Unity, I was shocked. And I was more shocked when I realized I could sit down and use those tools myself without really any training. And I haven't used one of my own editors built by my own teams in you know, almost 20 years uh, because usually the tools are mostly broken and very specific and written really for a programmer, not for a consumer. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the Unity suite of tools was what sold me first. Um, but people who, people who did not choose Unity, people who would argue that you know, one of the other 3D pipelines was their choice, usually would argue because the end result graphically was superior to Unity. And often that would be the case. It would be hard to argue against it. I just think that it's more valuable to have a good tool set than it is to have the final render pipeline. But Unity is now, as Unity has matured, they now are circling back to make sure that their render pipeline is absolutely uh, as good as any other can be. Uh, well, by the way, the other guys are also now realizing how powerful Unity's tools are, and they're trying to migrate and make better you know, consumer-sided tools. Um, but, uh, uh, but our acceptance for Unity 5 was that we knew that it would now l- let us do that final push to the highest possible levels of quality of, of production value. And, uh, uh, and so we, we made the full switch to Unity from 4 to 5 all in one release, which is really three weeks worth of work and a week of you know, debugging. And, uh, and that was actually the scariest release we've ever had because this whole server stability thing we like to claim, the, the server stability went away during the transition to Unity 5. Uh, but fortunately, the team got it all back on its feet and uh, barely got it all stabilized again before our publish date, which is already published. We, you know, we, we, we don't want to miss our shipping date and we don't want to miss our stability uh, goal. Unfortunately, uh, we made both those again. And, uh, and the good news on Unity 5 is that uh, with just three weeks of work, we've, we did finish the conversion. We haven't yet started to use the optimized either render pipelines from a speed standpoint, nor have we started yet to utilize uh, the specialized uh, uh, render pieces to really punch the graphics way up. That's coming in the release working on now. But even just the quick port has already picked up uh, some of the really great features of Unity 5, especially in the area of lighting. Uh, the, uh, you know, if you look at the, uh, the lighting and the glow and the reflection and how that interacts with bump maps and, you know, uh, and color saturation just gen- in general in the world, just its default behavior is way better than it already was in Unity 4. And so, uh, uh, but the thing we're really excited about to see is, is what's going to happen this release that we're getting a chance to really, you know, fine tune it. So as you know, uh, we've kind of really reached that next level of massively multiplayer online games between survival, survival sandboxes like H1Z1, um, and also games like EverQuest next, which really let you interact with the entire world through voxels. Uh, where does your game kind of fit into this new world? Like 
what really makes it stand out in your mind? So I think there's two areas that are critical to a Lord British Ultima-esque game. Uh, and, and one of them is the, uh, 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 the purpose of being in the world. Um, you know, one of the things I started paying very close attention to, really starting with Ultima 4, is I said, look, you know, in the, in the hypothetical future when we can create a, let's say, a, a tennis game that is in perfect VR, where you literally, you're like on the Star Trek holodeck, you can see it, you can feel it, etc. <clears throat> you still need a good reason to be there. And just being a simulation is not enough. You have to feel like my time there has purpose. And, that, uh, and to me, one of the best ways to make a, your time in a virtual world have purpose is to make sure that the storylines and things that are happening in and around you are relevant to contemporary social issues that people are likely pondering in their real, real, their real world lives. Uh, and also by uh, taking on uh, complex social subjects that I purposely try to trick you into taking sides on and then showing you why a, a, an opposite perspective to what you might honestly hold personally dear is also reasonable. And to basically hold a mirror up to yourself, uh, you know, uh, uh, and, and one way to say that, for example, one of the ultimates I'm most proud of would have been in, uh, 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 let's see, in this one I might use, uh, in Ultima 6, uh, The False Prophet, where <clears throat> I was trying to show how most of us, uh, you know, gaming gamers tend to be relatively progressive thinkers about social issues. Most of us would not think of ourselves as, uh, or not like to think of ourselves as racist or sexist. Most of us probably aren't racist or sexist outwardly. But it's interesting to see how easy it is to to uh, to show people that they're capable of it. And so, for example, in Ultima Six, I introduced this gargoyle race which has horns and wings and claws and big fangs, and they start the game attacking you. Well, that's a, those are all pretty clear social symbols to say these guys are bad guys. Well, you know, in the past, in racism era, dark skin or whatever might have been something that was a cue to the, this, there's something different about this person that should cause you suspicion. So by showing somebody something that socially we've decided is, you know, horns and fangs means evil, uh, I now can set you up for a fall. I can now tell you a story that, by the way, you shouldn't, you shouldn't, you should actually judge things by what's happening in the game, not what they just look like. And, uh, uh, and so I think th th that's one aspect that makes my games unique. The other is the, the, the detail of the simulation and, and, and more from just a voxelness standpoint. Um, the, you know, one of my mantras to the team is that anything that we, show in the world that looks like it should function in some way better function in that way mm -hmm. and otherwise don't put it in the game and and i take that to not only obvious large physical things like if you put a piano in the game you got to be able to go over and play it but all the way down to things like uh, you know in reality if you and i if, there was, if this building caught fire and you and i said well, we need to get out of this room well the first thing we would do is go to the doors we came in through but let's suppose those were locked well, if those doors were locked, we would look around ourselves right now and we'd go, okay, well, these are partition walls that might be openable, but these are pretty heavy partition walls. They might not actually open. And then I would look up and notice there's an acoustic ceiling in here that you might be able to lift those tiles off. But the ones that are by this wall might be firewalls. So that wall might go up past the acoustic tiles and might still block us in. And, uh, and there's no windows in this room, so we can't throw a chair through the window. But 
the if if something like that were to really happen, that's the logical deduction a real person might have in that situation in this room. And so, what you might, so in a game, I think there's a responsibility for game developers to go through that same logic. They're going like, you know, if, if I'm locked in a dungeon behind a wooden door and I've got a battle axe, one of the first things I'm going to think of is I'm going to use my battle axe and I'm going to chop through that dang door. And if that's a reasonable assumption for you to make based on the clues that you've been given by reality and the virtual world around you is that I should, I've got a dang battle axe. I mean, I can get through that wooden door. Then let's let that work. But if as a game designer, you want to block somebody in there and not let that work, you better put a door there that looks like I shouldn't be able to break it down with my battle axe. So make it a steel door. And then that lets you then scale up and go, well, what if I have a cannon in this room? Maybe that would get through the steel door. And the answer is maybe it should. And it, because you want to be consistent about all of the interactivity of your virtual world. And I can't tell you how frustrated I've always been when I see um, uh, games, uh, like I'll pick on another one. We, we helped publish one called Lineage. Uh, that, uh, uh, that was a very beautiful game that came to America from Korea. Uh, it w- looked a lot like Ultima Online, uh, but actually the graphics were way better than Ultima Online's. Uh, it was truly a gorgeous game. But I can't, you know, the first time I sit down to play it, I wander around in this beautiful town. I see these kiosks with people with, uh, you know, uh, baskets of fish out for sale and a treasure chest sitting next to it. And the first thing I do is walk over and click on the treasure chest. It's not interactive. It's just a piece of art to make the world look nice. And I was like, ah. Oh. Then I walk over to the table, and I'm, there's fish sitting on the table. I'm going to go pick one up. Uh, no, it's just art. And, uh, and then you quickly realize that most games, most role-playing games, most of the art is just there as a backdrop. To which I'm going, well, it's not worth it to me. It's, it's, uh, you know, I get just as much pleasure. Like there was a, there's a, an iPhone game called A Dark Room. No graphics at all. And, uh, uh, and, and I enjoyed it just as much. Uh, it's one of the rare games I've played to completion. You know, there's only 20 games or so in my life I've played to completion, and A Dark Room is one of them. And, I, and it's a brilliant game. And it's because it, whatever choices they made to, of interactivity and interaction and game, develop, game design aspects, it's consistent, and uh, it never alludes to something that doesn't act the way I expect it to, to and I can interpret it visually to. I'm not fooled. Uh, and disappointed uh, by any implication it had. And so uh, uh, that devotion to the virtual world simulation being thorough is another thing that I think is unique to, to my games. You've obviously, I'm turning the focus on to you for a moment. Um, you've obviously been at this for quite a long time now. Where are you as a designer? You know, it's interesting. Uh, it's definitely true. I've been doing this you know, 40 years, I think, now at this point. So it's... Uh, uh, while there were other designers who started back then, I don't know any who started back then who are still designing, <laughs> other than myself and maybe one or two others. And uh, uh, but I also I also think that we as a an as an as an industry and me as an individual are still only scratching the surface of what can be done. I mean, there's there's clearly been enormous progress every year, not just this year, on everything about the. Uh, audio-visual presentation of, a, of, of any kind of game. Uh, and, you know, and, and as an industry, we're now more powerful than any other. You know, uh, games now outsell you know, all books, all movies, all television combined by a good multiple. And yet, you know, I, I had somebody, there's a, there's a museum opening in uh, New Jersey called the Museum of Science Fiction. And 
they were talking about the fact that, <clears throat> you know, in the in science fiction works of, of, of whether that's uh, books or television or movies, they often are very inspirational and or predictive of the actual real future. And he, they were saying, hey, Richard, can you help us find some games to put in this museum? And I went, you know, it's going to be hard. Because despite all we've done, we still are so thin from writing relevant, uh, meaningful stories uh, about almost anything in our in our genre in our in our industry. Uh, that I w- I'm kind of disappointed to see how thin it is, uh, and that's even true for me. So so for me, if I go like, what am I proudest about? It's that I think I'm at least trying to create a literature of some kind. I'm, I'm, I really believe some of the stories I put into my games are relevant and uh, in a, even contemporarily. You know, you can look, you can look at the, the graphics for, uh, for being contextual with the era they were in uh, and how clunky some of the tools might be to express story, but you can still go, oh, I can see where this was headed and, it's, uh, and it was uh, worthwhile. Yet... As a storyteller, uh, you know we're still it's still it's we we still haven't figured out how to do it well, and so uh, I think we're getting better. I think I'm getting better. I think Shroud of the Avatar will will finally be able to take a true deep story and a true multiplayer environment and integrate them. Which a lot of my critics are going, you can't do that at the same time. It's not possible. And I'm going, well, I hope I can prove you wrong, but uh, uh, but uh, but hopefully we'll get better. Now I, I just got to know: Are there any games that you would put into that museum? Uh, you know, it's. Uh, I, I think there are some games that are. Uh, if I, well, this is the advice that I gave them. I actually, I actually recommended they put in two kinds of games. Um, I said uh, one kind of game you should put in because of how powerful the audiovisual aspects of gaming are. And I said, you know, if. Uh, on the science fiction side, especially one of the people that does it best is Chris Roberts. Uh, and I said, you know, if you look at Star Citizen, uh, it is mind-blowingly good. Uh, but it is what it is. It's an economic game, and it's a combat game. And so, you know, it's not going to tell the same kind of depth of uh, human relevance as Forbidden Planet or The Day the Earth Stood Still or some of these other science fiction greats. But it's going to show the power of our industry. And then I actually said, beside that game, you should go to the other extreme. Don't worry about the graphics look at all. Just pick one that does say something socially, uh, make some social comment. And I actually mentioned the one I've already mentioned here to you, too, which was A Dark Room. I don't know if you've played A Dark Room. I haven't, no. But, uh, you know, in A Dark Room, you start in a dark room with a fire that you have to keep collecting wood to keep lit. And over time, you, you, you find, uh, you know, villagers wander by because of the fire and you put them to work building huts and keeping the fire stoked. But it ends with a rather, rather interesting social twist about who you are, how you got here and where you go afterwards and why that sort of then brings into question uh, human motivation uh, uh, or appropriate behavior uh, under tough circumstances. And it was, which I was very surprised by with that game. But it showed me that, yeah, even in a very simple game, this can be done. In fact, it's it's independent of, it's 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 often in, it's often attempted uh, orthogonal to people who have the goal of making the best graphics. Hmm. And so I actually said, if I was going to pick two, I'd put those two side by side. So we're running out of time, but 
I guess the last question I have is, what is the next major milestone for Shadow of the Avatar, and what's the road ahead? <clears throat> well, for us, uh, the next big milestone is when we f- truly hit alpha, uh, which means all game systems present. A full game slice is complete. And we're going to hit that uh, this summer, uh, hopefully early, earlier in the summer. Uh, but then uh, by uh, early fall, we'll hopefully have hit beta, which means it might even be late fall, really, I would guess. Uh, before we have also all the maps in, and uh, the data to fill out all those systems. Uh, and then the final milestone is, quote, commercial release, which is uh, a bit of a misnomer because we're sort of in commercial release now. Uh, but to us, what that really means is we, uh, we believe we will never wipe the servers again. And so that's really the, to us, that's the last step is the presumption that we'll never need to wipe characters ever again. And so we hope to do that before the end of the year. Is this your last game? Oh, heck no. No, 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 not at all. Not remotely. You know, it is interesting. A lot of people have asked me things like, you know, well, now that you, you, you're retired to go do space stuff, right? And, uh, uh, and you know, I've never not been interested in games. I, I, I hope, I don't think I will lose my passion for games. What I, you know, what I think will be interesting to know, though, is when do I think uh, that I will change my role in the game production? I'm still largely operating as the, lead designer or chief creative officer of the project uh, because I still, there's still unique things that only I do on the team. Uh, for example, if we're going to go develop a new language from scratch or a piece of history or a piece of why virtue is important and how we're going to manifest it, no one else on the team either wants to and or has the patience and or does it the way that I think is important. Some combination of those, they might argue it's just because I'm a stick in the mud, who knows. Um, but uh, uh, but that's still something unique that uh, it appears, uh, you know, I still have good uh, uh, job uh, security uh, to keep doing. But I actually think for, for, uh, for the art form, for my team, for my own sanity, it'd be nice to get some help on some of those areas. Uh, so I'm hoping some of these, some of these, we now have lots of schools teaching game design properly finally. And so I'm, I'm hoping uh, some young whippersnappers come and, and uh, do my job better than me. Richard Garriott, people can play your game Shroud of the Avatar online right now. And on our way up here, you told me that you like the name of the podcast, Acts of the Blood Gods. So thank you very much for that. Absolutely. Yes. In fact, we'll have to find a way to worship those blood gods in Shroud of the Avatar if I can uh, think of some clever way to do it. We have the blessing of Lord British himself. Thank you very much and good luck. Thank you. Appreciate it. Yep. Music for Acts of the Blood God provided by Leif Chappelle. Find more of his music at leifchappelle.com and the RPG Maker Music Pack at rpgmaker.net. For more great gaming content, follow us at usgamer.net.